Uh, we're going to be looking at, last week we finished in our study of Romans 6. Uh, this week we're going to be beginning Romans 7. But as we, uh, you remember last week we looked specifically at slavery as Paul concluded his chapter of Romans 6. And we looked at uh, the idea of slavery of sin versus being a slave to righteousness. We said that those who are slaves to sin, well, that's the unbeliever. And they're characterized by impurity and lawlessness. Of course, the end result of that is destruction and death. And then we looked at being a slave to righteousness, which characterizes the believer. Our master is God. We're characterized by being set free from sin, the end result of which is sanctification, leading to eternal life with God. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to that section of God's holy inspired word to Romans 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 today. So beginning in verse 1, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to one another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God." For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now at first glance, one may think Paul is talking about marriage. In a sense, he is. He's going to talk about Uh, when a spouse dies and how that relates to the law. But he's not talking about divorce here. That's a topic that is addressed in other parts of God's Word. Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and 1 Corinthians 7. Not specifically here. James Boyce writes, I'm convinced that most errors in interpreting this passage come from trying to get it to teach more than what Paul intended. He goes on to write, it's not an allegory, therefore it's not necessary to assign meaning to each of the illustration's parts. So what's this idea? Why is Paul discussing marriage here? Well, he uses marriage as an illustration to discuss death to the law and new life to Christ. We're going to talk a lot about that today, but keep that in mind. Death to the law, new life in Christ. Now in verse 1, Paul writes, The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. It's a rather obvious, self-evident truth, right? Think about the laws of the United States of America. We are bound as citizens to uphold the United States Constitution, which is our nation's fundamental law. We are bound and obliged to live under that law as long as we are alive and are citizens of America. When we depart this earth, we're no longer bound to the laws of this land because we're transported to another land altogether. For example, a police officer cannot make a dead man do anything, right? Or punish him for something that he's done wrong. 
The dead man is no longer bound to the laws of the land. Now, apparently, there are some that think a dead person can still cast a vote in an election. But that's discussion for another time. Paul then moves from verse 1 to verses 2 and 3 to discuss marriage. What we really want to focus on here, the upshot of this illustration, if you will, is in verse 3. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. So when we marry, we take vows. We promise to honor and cherish one another as long as we both shall live. The understanding is that when one spouse of the marriage covenant dies, then all obligations incumbent upon the remaining spouse are then set aside and no longer binding. So just as one is freed from the common law of the land upon death, so a woman is freed from the law that initially bound her to her husband when her husband dies. That's really what Paul is talking about in verse 3. Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones gives four helpful reasons for why marriage is discussed in this section of Romans. Those are on your handout. First, a woman who is married to a man is under the authority of that man. Now, to be sure, the culture today widely contests the truthfulness of that statement. But biblically, it's an accurate statement that a married woman is under the authority of her husband. We read in Ephesians 5.23, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. This, of course, doesn't mean, and it doesn't give permission for men to exercise dictatorial leadership in the home, but rather servant leadership in the home that points the wife and children to Christ. She lovingly submits to his leadership out of reverence and submission to God. Secondly, though, the subjection of a wife to a husband in marriage is a lifelong subjection. In today's culture of widespread divorce, we believe the vows that we take to one another during the sacred union of husband and wife are binding. The culture believes they're not binding. So we see people getting divorced for a number of frivolous reasons. I don't like the way you look anymore. I'm going to divorce you. I don't like your personality. Uh, I was reading this this week in the 1980s. A couple had been married for a whole month and a half. And the husband sought to divorce the wife because she did not prepare tea for him and his friends. So divorce ensued. Well, these are, these are all kinds of frivolous ideas for why people would actually get divorced. Certainly there are biblical grounds for divorce, unfaithfulness being one of those. But we as Christians should remember that the intent of God's original design for marriage was that it was for life. Thirdly, in spite of the permanent nature of this relationship between husband and wife and the resulting authority, there is nevertheless the possibility of entering into another relationship. How's that possible? Well, Paul answers in Romans uh, 7.3, if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. James Boyce writes, what he is stressing is that the law of marriage is not violated by the new relationship, that is, if the husband has died. Rather, the law is upheld. 
the woman is freed from the law, binding her to her first husband so that she might now marry another in legal manner. And I would say also in good conscience. So how does this pertain to the law and grace? You can hear Paul's opponents now saying, in essence, you've been talking a lot about the gospel, and, and it seems like the, the law is now null and void. It's not true. Rather, in the gospel of justification by faith alone, the law is fully honored. It's fully upheld, and it's fully satisfied through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, fourth, and this is so important, The object of the new relationship is that we might bear fruit to God. That's in verse 4, that we might bear fruit to God. So the focus then is on the purpose of the new relationship. The purpose would be sanctification and glorifying God the Father. Of course, that new relationship we have with Christ involves then us yielding fruit that bear testimony to the change that's taken place in our life. By union with Christ, this is important to consider, by union with Christ, which necessarily involves death to another, namely death to sin in our former nature, we can now live for him. Now, we can only have union with Christ if we have died to sin. Not that we will no longer struggle with it, but sin no longer, as Paul says in Romans 6, no longer has dominion over you believers. Boyce would say, when we die in him, that is Christ, we die to the law. And when we rise in him, we rise to this new relationship. Now, we're going to discuss more in a few minutes about bearing good fruit for God's glory. But for now, let's remember we can only bear good, godly fruit if we are in union with Christ, having been made alive to him, and are dead to sin. As you may recall, this is much of the theme Paul discussed in Romans 6. We see in Romans 6, 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Well, let's look at that second union, which is our union in Christ, the purpose of which is to bear good fruit. We see this in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you may bear fruit for God. There's a lot packed into that one verse. Four important things we could ask in the form of questions that I've got on your handout. One is, what have you and I died to? The answer in verse 4 is we have died to the law. Secondly, how, or we could say by what means have you died to the law? Paul answers that through Christ. What is the purpose of that union now? It is to belong to another, namely Christ. And what is the end result? At the end of verse 4, it says to bear fruit. So this verse is ultimately about, we could say, sanctification and how you get there. We've died to the law because Christ fulfilled the law. Paul writes in Romans 8.3, something that we'll cover in a few weeks, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
It's a work that Christ has done. He fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law by perfectly obeying it while on earth. And he also satisfied God's just wrath toward our sin with his sin-atoning sacrifice on the cross. So here's the important thing to note here. As a widow whose husband has, been, has died, has been released from the original law which bound her to her husband, and now she is set free to marry another, so we have been released from the law for the purpose of being joined to another, namely Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. That's Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. This is what God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, has done for you and for me. We who were once far off has brought us near, and we are now in union with Christ and have restored relationship with God the Father. And so the end result of that should be as we live out our lives in thanksgiving to what God through Jesus has done for us, the, end, the result of that is that we would be sanctified, that we would be continually growing Yes, availing ourselves to the ordinary means of grace, to his word, to prayer, to the sacraments, that we might grow as a testimony to what he has done in our life. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. Charles Hodge sums up this nicely in his commentary on Romans. I put it at the bottom of your handout. As far as we are concerned, redemption is in order to produce holiness. We are delivered from the law that we may be united to Christ, and we are united to Christ that we may bring forth fruit unto God. Now, James Boyce in his commentary discusses in regarding verse 4, uh, he, he talks about ways that we can grow in holiness, four ways primarily that we can be more and more sanctified. First, in light of our text today, where Paul is using this illustration of marriage, Boyce writes that holiness is produced when we become Christians, because when we become Christians, we take the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as our own. Just as a woman traditionally takes a man's name for hers when she marries him. So when Shannon and I were married 25 years ago, she walked in and had one name, and she walked out, and had my name. That name was transferred to her by way of our wedding vows. In like manner, when we are united or wed to, if you will, Christ, we become his, and we take on a different name, the name Christian, meaning Christ one and Christ followers after Christ himself. Boyce writes, this is what happens when you are joined to Jesus in fruitful Christian union. Before this, you were miscenter, for you were under the law of God and rightly condemned by it. You were a sinner by choice and by divine decree, but you have been set free from that old union by dying to it in Christ 
and are raised to another union with him. God gives you Christ's name, so you who were once Miss Sinner are now Mrs. Christian. The second way that marriage to Christ leads to holiness is through the new status that it gives us, the new status that it gives us. Think about, ladies, when you were married, a woman becomes associated inherently in marriage with that husband's family. So tradition would say that a woman, as Boyce writes, a woman may have come from a distinguished family, but if she marries a man who is an alcoholic, thereafter she will be known as the wife of a ne'er-do-well. She's known by his status rather than her own. On the other hand, she may have come from a very humble background, but if she marries the heir apparent to a throne, she will be known thereafter as a princess and perhaps even eventually a queen. Well, it's really the same for us as Christians. No matter what family you were born into, before coming to Christ, we had a low status. Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers, strangers to the covenant of promise. But then our status changed because of our now union with Christ, such that Paul writes in verse 19 of Ephesians 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So here's what we get from that. Several things. One important thing. You and I are no longer identified by who we once were. But we are now identified currently by whose we are. We're not identified by who we once were before coming to Christ. But we are now identified by who we currently are in Christ. Some of y'all may see that a little bit more palpably. You may go home for a visit and you see your parents and they still think of you as this little child who hasn't grown up. Or maybe siblings still think of you that way. They still have this picture in their mind. They say, "You're, you're really not 45 and growing holy. You're really 15 and rebellious. No, I'm different, you want to say. Well, God sees you through the lens of what Christ has done for you. He sees you for whose you are, namely his. Some of you want to have this intrinsic thing going on in your mind where you continue to identify yourself with past sins. You struggle with that. You struggle to break past of those past sins. Remember how God sees you. He imputed the very righteousness of his son to you on the cross that that sin could be atone for. So we're no longer identified by who we once were, but we are now identified by whose we are. We are sons and daughters of the King. We are co-heirs with Christ. We've gone from a very low status to indeed the very highest status possible. All right, so the third way this marriage to Christ leads to holiness is that we now have privileges due to our new enhanced status. Now, all of you guys have gone to uh, graduation ceremonies, right? And normally at the end of a graduation, they will say that those people earning that degree now have all the rights and privileges pertaining thereunto. So too, we as Christians who have experienced a change of state 
now have rights and privileges as those belonging to God's covenant family. What are those? Well, first of all, we have access to God in prayer. We have full confidence that when we come to God, He inclines His ear to us. In Isaiah 65, 24, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Jesus says in John 14, 13, and 14, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So one of the great privileges of being a child of God is that we have access to Him in prayer. Secondly, we have provision of our needs. God provides for us. He promises to care for His beloved children. We see this regarding our spiritual need in Philippians 4.19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Certainly we also know as believers that we need not worry about the material, about the physical provisions getting met because God will provide those as well. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Matthew 6, 26. Well, a third privilege we have is Jesus' personal care and protection. Again, if we think about a marriage illustration once again, imagine a wife who is in serious trouble and distress and a husband who doesn't want to be bothered by it and is negligent. We would think what a terrible and indifferent husband he is. Well, this could never, ever be said of Jesus and how he cares for his bride, the church, and how he cares for you as his beloved children. One important verse for us to remember, it actually happens at the end of the Great Commission, but it's an important verse for us to remember each and every day. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of of the age. Matthew 28, 20. Do you get that? Let that resonate. He is with you. He's always with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He's always with you, journeying with you, guiding you, loving you, protecting you. Well, a fourth privilege that we have is the Word of God, but specifically the Holy Spirit to help illumine the Word of God. Because you might say to me, well, Kevin, yeah, but we everybody has the Word of God. The Bible is everywhere. Average home has four or five Bibles, many of them collecting dust. Yes, but as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit to help enliven the Word of God, helping us understand it and apply it to our lives. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, listen to this, it's very important. If you would know the love of Jesus, what it is, then give him opportunities of telling you. He will meet you in the Scriptures, and he will tell you Give time, give place, give opportunity. Set other things aside and say to other people, I cannot do what you ask me to do. I have another appointment. I know he's coming and I'm waiting for him. Do you look for him? Are you expecting him? Do you allow him? Do you give him opportunities to speak to you and to let you know his love for you? Make time for the Word of God. The fourth way that our new marriage to Christ produces holiness is by bringing us into a love 
that will never fade and a relationship that will never end. Boyce writes, we died to our unfruitful first marriage to the law when we died in Christ. So that marriage ended, but now we've been raised in Christ who will never die. And having been joined to him, we are assured of a love that will last forever. How can you be assured that God, who eternally loved you, will continue to love you? Because he says he will. The psalmist writes, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures what? Forever. Psalm 136, 1. We've seen the great privileges. Look with me briefly at the last two verses of of, uh, our section today. Romans 7, 5 through 6. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So we have in verse 5 and verse 6 two ideas separate or juxtaposed. Verse 5 describes the unregenerate living in sin. Verse 6 describes the regenerate, the born-again believer living in freedom to now serve the Holy Spirit. Freedom from the law, though, remember, freedom from the law does not give us freedom to sin or a license to sin. Rather, as John MacArthur points out, freedom for the first time to do what is righteous, a freedom the unregenerate person does not and cannot have. Let me just conclude with a Uh, an excerpt from John MacArthur on this section. The law is still important to the Christian. For the first time, he is able to meet the law's demands for righteousness, which was God's desire when he gave it in the first place, because he has a new nature and God's own Holy Spirit to empower his obedience. Listen to this. Although he is no longer under the law's bondage or penalty, why is that? because Christ satisfied that for us on the cross, you and I, as Christians, we will be more genuinely eager to live by its godly standards than, it's the, most, than, it's, than the most zealous legalists. With full sincerity and joy, we can now say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love thy law, Psalm one nineteen ninety seven. As believers, we are dead to the law as far as its demands and condemnation are concerned, but because we now live in newness of the Spirit, we love and serve God's law with a full and joyous heart. So dear brother and sister in the Lord, let's get after it. Let's love the law of the Lord, giving thanks to him, being grateful for what God through Jesus has done and accomplished on our behalf, causing that then that we might bear fruit for God's glory alone. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are grateful, Lord, for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we leave here today and as we begin Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and the days that follow, oh, Lord, would we give attention to your word. Would you, through your Holy Spirit, continue to teach us that we might grow in it, that we might bear good, godly fruit for your glory alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.